G'day everyone, welcome to the Teamcast. I'm Harry Moffat, I'm a director at the Mission Critical Team Institute and I'm responsible for operations here in Australia and New Zealand. The Teamcast is a show where Dr Preston Klein, Claire Murphy, Janice Jackson, Coleman Ruiz and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. Mission Critical Teams work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less, where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you're on a Mission Critical Team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the Teamcast. Today I'm speaking with former SAS operator turned PhD candidate, Danny Cooper. Danny served in the Australian Army for 22 years, 18 of which was with Special Operations. During his service, he deployed on active operations multiple times into some of the most dangerous places on the planet. I was privileged to serve with Danny and I remember him as about the most diligent operator I knew in terms of his meticulous physical and mental preparation. I always saw him as being ahead of the curve in this regard and, and certainly was a, a, an inspiration to me as I was ageing later in my career and uh, trying to maintain my body. His interest in this field has underpinned an ongoing passion for human performance and for programming. While serving in the military, he attained a Master's in Sports Science and he's currently a PhD candidate researching evidence-based practice in the areas of information processing, response selection, stress resilience, and skill acquisition. Danny's also the founder and senior performance consultant at Comanche Group, which is a human performance consulting business working across corporates, elite sports, and tactical domains. Additional to his research, he's an avid practitioner Uh, He loves to test his own physical and mental limits, having completed some of the world's toughest adventure races and ultimate endurance events. Now, these include the 430-mile Yukon Arctic Ultra and the 350-mile Iditarod Trail Invitational. He recently earned a spot on the 1,000-mile Iditarod Trail Invitational, which is absolutely remarkable. Like me, Coops is acutely aware of the power that education adds to operators through life resilience and adaptability, and particularly in terms of their transition experience. And that's something we'll touch on during our wide-ranging conversation today, amongst many other things. Danny Cooper, or Coops as I know him, is a brilliant role model for serving and aspiring operators everywhere, in that he has dispelled some of the myths around educating yourself while you're serving in some of the most demanding occupations. Special Operations Operator, PhD Researcher, Ultra Marathon Adventurer and Stay-at-Home Dad, Daniel Cooper joins us on the show today. G'day Coops, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good, thanks Moff. Thanks for the great intro. Thanks for having me on as well. It's a real honour to come on the Teamcast and an absolute pleasure to be here. Brilliant, mate. I'm, I'm glad we've kind of got the band back together in a way. So, uh, well, a big welcome to the team cast, mate. I'm pretty excited because, uh, as I said in the intro, you've managed to do the education, the service and the transition piece uh, really, really well. And I know that's uh, ongoing for you. You're up there in Queensland. How's, uh, how's life in God's country? <laughs> I was born south of the border, so but up on this side, it's not too bad. So these are, um, we're actually enjoying it up here. It's an easy place to come to coming out of Perth. So life's quite relaxing. And I'd sort of 
get to pick and choose a little bit about what I do now around my research. So, um, right. plenty of family time, plenty of camping, plenty of sort of time off and time to do some recreational pursuits and some training. Brilliant, mate. I'm envious that the father things are strong in what I see and read about you. And how do you go with the state of origin, you know, being a blues supporter up there amongst all the Maroons? <laughs> the best thing is I've been conditioned to them losing for probably about 12 to 15 <laughs> years now. So <laughs> that frustration's long gone. So I don't know. Yeah. My wife's from Queensland, so she enjoys it. My kids sort of enjoy watching Queensland win. So I guess I can kind of take some solace in their enjoyment. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't know. Sort of, I got past getting wrapped up in sport now. Anyway, so I'll just sit back, enjoy it, watch some yep. of the the frustration, and then yeah, it is what it is. So, mate, um, notwithstanding rugby, I know you've got a bit of background in in uh, working in rugby league and uh, other sports, and we'll, we'll kind of get to that. But I think it's in, important to start off by saying that we served together in the regiment in Perth around the same period. And it was a period during which the regiment went through a great deal of change. And I'm talking mostly about how we trained and selected people. And, and, and I think it's fair to say we were two of many operators at the time who were looking at selection training and developmental approaches within the within the regiment and kind of questioning what was going on and, and was it best practice and, and what was what else was out there. And we were looking outside the unit and seeing better ways of training and develop, developing the operators physically, mentally, socially, and for me, kind of philosophically as well, how were they thinking and what were they, what were they thinking about. But the buy-in was tough at times. I know you had an easier path through the gym and through the work you were doing with physical programming and to that end to mental programs as well. But do you remember that time and do you remember some of the challenges around there trying to, you know, I suppose, develop how we were, uh, our approaches to training and selection? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, yeah, from the time I got there, because I obviously arrived a little bit after you, to when I left, yeah, there was huge amounts of evolution in the way everything was being done. And then, yeah, there was that time period where we were sort of both aligned in the human performance program. Yeah, the gym was definitely an easier approach than sort of psychology side of things or the mental aspect um, but there was still a lot of pushback. Like it's not an easy audience to go into and just say up front, you're doing things wrong, there's a better way. So you need to understand how you're going to put that message out. And I think at the end of the day, there was probably 30 to 40% buy-in sort of thing. And I sort of don't go in for statistics, but just to give an understanding. Yep. It was it was less than half, I would say, that really bought into the program. And then over time, I think it sort of grew a little bit of momentum and then sort of ebbed and flowed as well around what was going on and there was certain certainly a number of individuals that had their own opinion about how things were going to be done and the beauty of that place is that people aren't afraid to voice an opinion or challenge an assumption sort of thing so i had a number of sort of very open discussions about the best way forward and science isn't always the easiest way to make those arguments yeah. in that environment you know what i mean you can back your opinion but it's not always received that's right uh, a lot of a lot of bro science i think uh yeah <laughs> But, but um, mate, you, you had a huge impact. So now it's fair to say that the the the, the programming and the approach, not just in the unit, because this is going back, you know, before 
kind of human performance was a thing in in the military, and it, it had flow-on effects across to the rest of the military in, into the programming, and and I know that the unit was inspiring other thinking. So, uh, you know, there's a, the old adage in change management or change that those the people that kind of start the change don't see it. You know, that's left it kind of they kick it off, and then it's left to others to kind of carry the mantle. And and I went back earlier this year, mate, and the, and the gym, the approach to mental training, etc. Is, is pretty strong. So, uh, you know, it's a good legacy that you've you've left behind. You mentioned you joined a little bit before me, um, I think uh, a little a little bit after me. Let's start at the start. What inspired you to join Special Operations? What was the origin moment for you? Um, I don't know. I think it's really difficult to pinpoint a specific time period. Um, so I always had an interest in the military from when I was younger. So I used to watch a lot of Chuck Norris movies, a lot of yep. um, like Schwarzenegger movies, all those sort of Green Beret, Rainbow movies, a lot of war movies. And back then it was all Vietnam War movies mostly that were available. Um, so there was always that interest. No one in my family had been in the military. Then my brother joined a few years ahead of me and he was the first person that sort of went in, um, apart from sort of like some grandfathers and those sort of war type service things. And then, I don't know, it just interested me. Like it just seemed like something that would be a bit of fun and a good laugh and just a good challenge and then – uh, I think I came aware of special forces sort of specifically from the British SAS when they first sort of came into light after that hostage rescue. So I looked at that and I thought, you know, that's really cool. And then I seen some Navy SEAL videos and I thought they were really cool. And then I became aware that Australia had an equivalent unit where we had our own special forces capability. And then I sort of got interested and then I joined the Army with the intent to give it a go. For me, it was always just curiosity. like, could I pass selection? If I could pass selection, did I have what it take or what it took to work within that environment? And it was just more trying to answer some questions around, you know, what would life be like? And then, because in my mind, it was always, you know, I wonder where these people will come from that go into these units. Mm. You know, like I wonder how they grow up, you know, because it's almost like they're not a step ahead of you, they're a leap ahead of you. Like getting in there is almost another world away. And then you sort of go through the process, the next thing you know, you're in there. It's like, oh, holy shit. And now I've got to start performing. Trying not to be a lemon, you know, yeah. you go to work every day trying to make sure that you're contributing. So once I got there, for me, the, the, the big thing was making sure that I was contributing to the team and I was a reliable team member. So yeah. I sort of looked at what underpinned that. And early on, for me, it became important that physical capacity underpinned it to a, a fair degree. So if I got myself fitter, and that was something that I could easily control, that was within – well, that was 100% within my control and how I chose to do that as to the outcome there. And then it was just trying to make sure that I was doing the work I could and making sure I was keeping up and sort of the feedback you get keeps you sort of in a little bit of doubt quite regularly as to how you're performing. But I think that's just the <laughs> way things were back then. So do you reckon it's a, you know, those, as you're kind of coming through and it's emerging, it sounds like this, you know, the special forces type of goal do you think people, it is just an adventure for most people? It's it's the adventurer inside you. You mentioned that curiosity to test yourself. Where, where does that come from, do you think? or is it- I don't know. I reckon for me that's the big question. So I studied all the physical characteristics on the way into selection because obviously the human performance work evolved into collecting data on selection courses. So I looked at the physical side of things and there was nothing. Like, there was no relationship between any of the physical capacities and whether you're going to be there at the end and get mm. selected. Like obviously the higher your physical capacities, the higher your chance of having the ability to get there. 
But a lot of times the fittest guys would leave fairly early anyway. And then some of your sort of lower end markers would be there at the end. And then talking to the psychs that are doing all the testing, there was no real, and you could probably talk to this a lot more than me, there didn't appear to be any relationship between any of the psychometric testing or any of that data being collected and someone's chance of being at the end. So for me, it's sort of the big question was, well, what's motivating these people? You know, when the pain of selection and the sort of doubt around whether you've got what it takes, when that gets at its peak, what's the motivation that's underneath that that's keeping these guys going? Because as soon as, for me, as soon as pain is higher than motivation, you're going to quit. Like it's yeah. just, you just don't have the funds or the resources to pay that price anymore and then you're just happy to leave. Yeah, so I for me, it, yeah. it's, it's motivation. So I don't know. Are people going there because it pays to a lot more than the normal army? Are they going there because they're trying to prove something? Are they going there because they just feel that that's the job they have to do? I don't know. I've never really asked too much because I don't even know whether a lot of people there would understand what the motivation is. Yeah, it's still. Um, I, I, I agree. I, I think it's it's still unclear. Yeah, you talk about physical markers. I guess we know now that some pretty arbitrary times and weight carriage, you know, load carriage, uh, time for distance measurements. So in in our world, I think it's you know the around three kilometer benchmark carrying X weight in X time yeah. is a good indicator of um, of success on selection. And we also know that um, there's a couple of cognitive. Uh, measurements too that seem to indicate uh, a likelihood for success, but nothing explicit. And and you know, part of me kind of thinks, well, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. We just, uh, <laughs> but but what it doesn't do is it kind of doesn't indicate the best way, best measurements of selecting people. And so there's still it still fascinates me the the under the underlying motivations. You know, is it just a, some people say it's just competition, a competitive internal competitive drive. You know, it's alpha male or alpha female kind of drive that we all have innately in us. But um, it is a fascinating area, and we'll come back to that because I think some of your research touches on that. You know, what was your experience of of being in the unit? Yeah, I loved it to be honest. So when I joined, there was nothing going on. Like I joined after Timor, so I was in the Paris or our airborne for a couple of years, and then I joined on the back of. Timor, which is just a kind of peacekeeping mission, wasn't much to it for my rotation. And then I joined and then on the reinforcement cycle, 9-11 happened. So I was pretty much joining with the intent of having a look for a couple of years, seeing whether I enjoyed it and then, okay, what's on the back of that? And then we just got really busy for I don't know, 12, 15 <laughs> years right. before I knew it. I was going grey and I've got kids. But, like, it was a fantastic time. And like everything, it has its ups and downs. There's times where you're ready to throw it in sort of thing but I think that's everywhere and that's just frustration that you go through at certain friction points here and there but for the most part I really enjoyed it like it was a challenging period but I think the benefits I got from everything I was exposed to far outweigh any of the costs that came with it you know there's not too many people I know that have served for a decade or so that aren't carrying some sort of permanent injury or they're not debilitated in some way you know like it's a it's a high cost job and I sort of see it as very selfish hence why I delayed children and a lot of these other things for a long time. But, yeah, like, fantastic job if that's something that you're interested in. Like, if you're not interested in that, you're going to hate it. Yeah, I don't know. Like, going back, I'd I'd do the whole thing again. So Yeah, same, same. There is an element of love-hate in the job. I've I've heard um, (laughs) some of our colleagues say that the secret to special operations is it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's whoever can embrace the suck the best uh, will will get the most out of it. But what does, and I've just finished writing a piece on this recently, very basic, very obvious. One thing that kind of 
does resonate for me is humour. It's pretty rare in those environments for someone not to have a a pretty good sense of humour and a good sense of that kind of black humour as well, you know, being able to to crack a joke and make the absolute, uh, see positive in a bad light. So that's something I... Uh, I really remember on remember from those those times. And I just wonder, you know, could it be a selection criteria? It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But um, who knows? I think that black humor is almost essential. Whether you've got it going in, I think you've definitely got it on the way out. <laughs> um, and like a part of me sort of thinks that that's almost a, a survival mechanism as well, just because you can't take everything too serious. If you took everything you're seeing serious, you'd just break in no time. So there is that element of just the humour and then in those really tough situations, and I think this has kind of been spoken before with one of your previous presenters, was around the mechanism of humour to sort of act as a recovery point when you're under high pressure or high stress or you've been going for long-duration efforts. So like I know a number of times where we've been in an intense situation and like it's critical but then someone will make a joke or point out an obvious thing in sort of like a sarcastic way and then everyone sort of has a bit of a laugh and relax a little bit yeah and then, you know we're back into action don't think but it's just that split second or two where everyone kind of just lightens up a little bit definitely i've always said it you know a good fart breaks them breaks the mood you know that kind of brings everybody back to but the episode you're talking about was andrew huberman and he was talking yeah. about how that uh, that bit of humor and we we all know this everyone listening has experienced this where you you are maybe a bit flat or working harder in the grind and it just releases a few stress relieving hormones or chemicals in the brain dopamine or oxytocin you know i'm not no neuroscience the stress yeah, hormones and chemicals that we, that, that you're flowing through your brains when you're under stress, and uh, and we're going to come back to to fear and anxiety. And so, mate, one thing I think I've always connected with you on, and I think we share this in common with other other people as well, is this kind of I suppose moment through our career where we the penny dropped on education for whatever reason that is, you know, whether I I, I see an end end for myself and retiring, and I've got to have something afterwards or just a deep interest and curiosity in a field and wanted to take it to that next level. And also, you know, being mindful of inspiring new and young operators to, you know, think about their, their other things in their life. When was the moment, I suppose, or what what was your journey to education? I mean, you're at a high level now, PhD candidates, you know, pretty serious stuff. Um, <laughs> I'd argue it's probably a harder journey than the than the ultra marathons that you run. But um, what, what was your journey to, to education? So, yeah, it came about, about midway through my career. And to be honest, it was something that I'd never seen myself going into. So, like, when I left year 12, I think I got around 21% of my HSC. So I'm not a high flyer by any means. But I chose some subjects that I probably shouldn't have and then lost interest. And I think the school counsellor recommended me to go to a job at the local factory sweeping a floor. So <laughs> hopefully he's listening. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's just doing what he thought was the best thing. So, yeah, obviously I didn't excel in those last couple of years of school. And then I had no interest in doing any study because I just knew it wasn't something that I would dedicate the time to at that period. So, And then I sort of... It was probably around about 10 years into my career um, or eight or nine years at the regiment sort of thing. So I've been there for a while and I, my thoughts are you need to get competent at that job sort of thing. So that was the priority focus for a long time. And then, definitely, you know, like, and competence is sort of, it's a moving scale anyway. So you're competent at one level, you move up to the next level and then it takes you a couple of years to get competent there again sort of thing. So you just spend your days trying not to sort of stuff too much shit up. Um, 
So I got to a point where I thought, okay, I can take on another task now because I was competent enough in what I was doing and I had the time to do it. So, And I had a real passion in both understanding how to improve my own physical performance and I'd also identified that just from what I'd seen outside is that there was a better way to do it rather than the way we were doing it along the traditional sort of army lines of just sort of large-scale groups or large groups doing sort of boot camp type circuits and these sort of things and just running. Like there's a lot of running. Everyone was a good runner. So I started looking at, okay, well, what's the pathway to improving what we're doing? And that led me to come up with a plan where I would go and educate myself through some university and then bring all that information back. And that provided sort of two benefits. One was that information would feed back into the unit and hopefully guide it as to what was a better way of training. And then it would also provide me with an eventual exit plan sort of thing. So at that time, I wasn't thinking exit plan, but I knew that being essentially a high-end gunfighter wasn't really going to serve much purpose on the street. (laughs) There's not too many people that need that guy hanging around in their business. And, you know, like we bring a lot of other skills. I think there's a a lot of high-end skills that operators bring into a different environment, but they just don't have that sort of technical qualification so i knew without a qualification it was going to be difficult to transition into something meaningful at that time so and i had always had an interest in going into sport and just having a look at that environment so for me that served a good pathway for me and then it value added back into what i was doing so i went and at that time it was sort of just a one-off plan i went and seen the right people who endorsed it they allowed me a little bit of time and i just self-funded it because i thought if it's got a benefit for me then i'm happy to self-fund it and I was in a position where I could and that sort of degree wasn't that expensive anyway, so it wasn't really an issue. But yeah, um, like for me, the education piece, once I got to that point and I started focusing and dedicating the time to it, I was able to do well enough obviously to go through to a PhD, but then I renewed my interest in education and from there it kind of has just continued to grow. And looking back, I'd almost wished I had started it earlier, even if it was just part-time or doing little bits and pieces just to sort of start to streamline that because a lot of it does value add back into the occupation. Definitely, yeah. I think that's a remark I've heard from a lot of guys saying uh, that it's made me a better operator, leader, decision maker, just having that that breadth of exposure. Um, And the other comment I hear regularly is it kind of just breaks down a few barriers around the civilian world too because we kind of build up in our minds, particularly in special operations, this secrecy and this ironclad bubble of, of secrecy and, and being quiet and not interacting. But I think when you get out with civilians, it kind of just allows you to explore those other parts of yourself that are probably a little squashed uh, inside. You mentioned something there, mate, really interesting. You know, there wasn't – you kind of come to a realisation that being a high-end gunfighter, there was not going to be much <laughs> much need for that outside. It, it was something that inspired me because around the time – early in my career, I there was a lot of older guys coming back to the unit and they were telling their stories and they were – the end state or the job that most of them were doing was going off to do overseas uh, security details. And then as my career unfolded, I was overseas and seeing some of these guys and they were, you know, I think it's fair to say they were unhappy doing dangerous jobs for people who didn't give a shit about them really, about all they gave a shit about was making money and they're big drinkers and invariably families had broken up and it kind of got me to thinking that, you know on my education journey that that's not the bloke I want to be that's not the end state I'm looking for you know I, I was interested in sport I was interested in some other things and and so it's a really good point 
sick and tired of seeing guys go up to the sand pit and just disappear. Good people. So the education parts, uh, you know, that again, I'll come back. You know, we, we both share that. You said something else there I want you to expand on, if you will, mate. You, you, you mentioned that there was a point there where education, you, you kind of, your interest in education kind of, it sounded like you fell back in love with it or something and it grabbed you and that that's kind of inspired you on. Is that like a lifelong learning now for you? Do you see it that way that it's just, it's, it's something you'll do forever, just research and learning? Yeah, definitely. Just to add on your initial point, see, I seen those same guys coming back and for me that scared me, like ending up down that path pretty much scared me because that's somewhere I didn't want to end up being because for me that's the road to nowhere sort of thing. So it definitely inspired some of that learning as well. And then once I started learning, I just really enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed getting new information, really enjoyed sort of looking for better questions or better ways to go about things. And I think in the early days because – I'd go away to uni, I'd learn something, I'd come back and then I'd look at how I could apply that within an environment. It made it a lot easier to learn and a lot easier to enjoy it because I'm not learning, thinking about I need to get a job at the end of this like a lot of university students are. I'm learning for a purpose to put that into an environment where I'm instantly helping people, I'm instantly improving something. So because it was all being applied straight back into that environment, I definitely had a real interest in it. And then when I'd find information that was really applicable, then I'd start to explore that and I'd start to look for really good questions as to how could that information or that practice be applied within the environment I'm in to get better results? How can I improve things based off the stuff that I'm learning? So it was always, early on, it was always about the transfer of that knowledge into practical outcomes within the environment. And then the more I did it, I just started searching for more and more information. And now it's sort of, it's obviously led me into a PhD, but. Gone big of, scale. <laughs> yeah, my wife constantly laughs at me because I'll be reading research while I'm training, like rest sessions in my home gym here. I'll have research papers out and I'm reading and highlighting stuff. And then I'll be listening to audio books when I'm not doing anything and then podcasts when I'm running or when I'm sort of don't have to concentrate too hard. And there's sort of scribbling all over the house downstairs where I work and then there's yeah. scribbling on the fridge and there's notes everywhere. It's like some sort of <laughs> nutty professors in the house. But it's all kind of just all these big questions like trying to join the dots on certain things. And it's definitely something that I'll do forever. Like once I've done my PhD, then I'll still continue to learn because there's still so much information coming out. Like it might not be specific to the exercise science that I'm doing, although there's still always new research coming out. But a lot of this other research around neuroscience and sort of psychology informs back into what I'm doing sort of thing. So like I'm, I don't really sit in my lane anymore and probably no. upset some people, but I think it's good because as I sort of said before, the human body isn't a silo of specific sciences. It's just one giant organism that's functioning as an interconnection of all these sort of scientific understandings. So no, I don't really break it down for the purposes of qualifications and, yeah, I've got a lane and then I'm way outside of that everywhere sort of bumbling around getting just enough education to be dangerous in some areas. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> mate, you've summed, cuts. Yeah. <laughs> you've summed it up perfectly and uh, there are no lanes in uh, as far as I'm concerned either. You know, your, your mental health and wellbeing is directly correlated to health and fitness and um, and injury and illness and and your social connectedness and your beliefs and values. It's just a big swarming mass. And I, <laughs> I, I actually, I, I kind of think I... I um, confuse some of the the young operators in their kind of foundational training and and stuff I talk to them occasionally and 
and about human performance now it's just this big cloud of mush and you've got to be you've just got to start thinking about it with a bit more sophistication rather than just you know muscles and 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 yeah. wellness so it is but that i think that's the intriguing part of it and if you part of me thinks that our you know the training and what we're selected for this high tolerance to ambiguity high tolerance for uncertainty that you get in in the selection and training processes of of special ops and many of the mission critical teams it gives you a good perspective or a good lens through which to view the complex adaptive system that is the the, the organism, the human organism, and its and its surrounds and and whatever that is, you know. It's, um, so it's a nice uh, sentiment you've wrapped up there, mate. You talked about your lane and your and kind of uh, swimming all over the pool uh, to, to, to wherever, which I love, mate. So. W- you went in to do your Masters of Sports Science. It's pretty high-level stuff. You completed a thesis and and some kind of focus study through your Masters. What kind of captured your imagination there? Yeah, so um, I initially did a Masters of coursework, which is more sports science, and then um, I started looking at – there's some questions that I was really interested in and then formalising that into research seemed like the best way to go about it. So I did a Masters of research, which was uh, – it was – the intention was to look at how we can we increase aerobic capacity quicker or more effectively on the pre-selection guide so we could get guys to turn up in a better aerobic condition but with less focus because there's so many other attributes that you need to train. And the 3.2 is almost it's turned into this critical test now, which everyone's mm. focused on. And it takes up a lot of time, but it's it's a test. Like that's all it is. It's just it's more or less a safety test to make sure that you've got the aerobic capacity to recover from day to day and get to the end of the course. So it is taking up a lot of time. So I looked at okay, well, can we improve it? And I started looking at models of fatigue and came across the psychobiological model of fatigue, which looks more at perception of effort and perception of fatigue. So I started studying that, and then I transitioned out of defence into professional sports. So I used a local sporting team. So I ended up not having enough numbers to get a, an article published, but we could see that there was definitely a trend in the work I was doing, and that was sort of looking at distracting working memory while they're doing a physical task, and that's with an back test or a 2N. So you'd be familiar with that, but that's just remembering like a sequence of letters, and then if the one two-back corresponds with the one that you've just heard that's a positive and then it just goes through basically it's just this distracting working memory so i wasn't too concerned how accurate they were just as long as they were concentrating on the letters while they were running and we mix that with interval training and so it was a much smaller dose than what you'd normally give somebody to conduct a 3.2 training and we're using rugby so i was using a, a different shuttle test and they improved it wasn't significant but we didn't have the numbers and the the testing period should have gone longer. I just ran out of time based around a few other factors to get a much better research article. So some of the limitations were in probably study design at my end, but it did show that there's definitely a link between your cognition and your performance. So so you're saying that if you're distracted, you're going through pain through max effort or max exertion, and if you're distracted by thinking then you're, you have a different perception of that pain or that your barriers. Just talk me through that. So the, the model itself, and I hope I do it justice because it's, it's not my baby sort of thing. There's some guys that have done a lot of research in this, so I'll also give it a summary. But it kind of looks at, and we'll talk in terms of, say, a time trial or you've got a, an, a, an effort where there's a duration period so, and you have a known outcome to it. So as you start, you start to 
quickly try and work out, and this is all at a very subconscious level, uh, and it's an evolution of sort of the old black box theory where there's a central governor inside your mind that governs your, governs your power output. So this looks at it, and so you start off doing your effort, and it could be anything really, but it uses, all the research just uses sort of exercise as your, your, your marker of effort. So you start off and you subconsciously work out how much effort that you're putting in, and then you get to certain points, and just say you're a quarter of the way through, you'll start to try and determine how much has it cost you to get to that point, how much discomfort are you in, how much more discomfort can you tolerate for the last three quarters and what's your adjusted power output to get there. And then as you get halfway, you'll adjust your pacing again around how much effort it's cost you to get to halfway, how much you think you've got left and whether the current pace will get you there with how much you've got left. And we always underestimate on how much energy we have or what our budget is so to speak so and we always have some in reserve as the what if you know i mean like and this goes more back into or more into the research that we'll probably talk about later but there's always a survival requirement to get to the end of the day because you know we're built from a machine or from an, we're built within an environment where there may have been a life and death situation just before we went to bed or just after we went to bed so we always leave a reserve so you're saying you're saying there that at a subconscious level even at max effort the body's kind of saving a bit of the budget, is that? For most people. So for most, okay, yeah. The elite, and this is one of the ways they test it, is they get people to do a max effort over, say, five seconds. And a lot of us don't on a bike, so a max effort, sort of a 15-second cycle sprint, max effort, and they look at their power output in watts. And then they'll go, go and do a time to fatigue. So you go at a set, say, 70% of your max power output for as long as you can until you can no longer go, until you... Voluntary quit, put your hand up, say, I've got nothing left in the tank. They give you a minute and they do the 15-second max effort. And most of them will get within sort of 90 to 95% of their original effort. So right. when you look at it, like they're not spent. They just got to a point where they're no longer willing to tolerate that pain. Yep. So they do that and then they've looked at doing uh, cognitive. So this is where the cognition links into it. So they give them a maths test or something that's cognitively demanding so they're using up cognitive energy and then when they go and do time trials or time to fatigue, it's significantly reduced. So right. the mental effort impacts your physical effort. So physical and mental effort integrated. So if you're doing a lot of physical effort, then your mental capacity goes down for hard tasks. And this is where you see people that are really fatigued. They'll look for easy decisions or easy options. And within the sporting context, it's where you see a lot of mistakes because people are fatigued and they're just they're more prone to bias, so they're trying to shortcut decision-making cycles and they make yep. mistakes. They go for sort of false positives. So when I found this out, I started looking at it, it raised a lot of questions about the way we used to conduct a lot of our tasks because we've almost set ourselves up. But there's a few things that come into play which counteract that. So it looks at the cognitive impact of it and then going back to your original point is that elite cyclists don't seem to be impacted by the cognitive load. So they've developed the ability to sort of reach their maximal power output. So, so be comfortable being uncomfortable? Yeah, that, would that be, yeah. yeah they can yeah. they can tap into that high-end consistent power output without letting other level of or other perceptions around fatigue interfere with their power output. So for the average punter, if they're feeling mentally fatigued, they're going to reduce their physical power output because they're just not willing to take themselves to that place yeah. where it's still there, they're just not willing to get into it where someone who – whether it's genetics or whether it's learned through the process of becoming an elite level performer, they've learned to tap into that maximal power output even when they're cognitively fatigued. So they've kind of separated 
that cognitive fatigue and influence of that perception on physical output, they've separated that from actual physical output. So potentially they've, because they're comfortable in the stressful situations, that their thinking impacts the budget, whether that's cognitive or physical, and, and they expend less mental energy perhaps on thinking and worrying and under stress, that, you know, kind of thought-induced stress or anxiety perhaps. Is that, would I yeah. be right? Yeah. Yeah, there's still a fair bit of theory around it. Like it's very hard to define the, the mechanism of intellectual cognition or sort of you know mental perception of things. The impact of mental fatigue doesn't affect them and they can push a lot harder. And I think they're probably less prone to thinking while they're doing so. Like a Tour de France cyclist just gets on the bike and goes where somebody who's in an amateur race probably gets on the bike and 30 minutes in, they probably start to think about how their legs are heavy or how you know, the seat's uncomfortable, these sort of things. And that's a distraction from your power output. Yep. I like, um, I really like that, mate. And I think, again, going back to the Huberman with Coleman Ruiz, the Andrew Huberman, I think it was episode three, I think that conversation informs a lot of what we're talking about, but from probably a neurological perspective. But there's so much more to this. I mean, we I've said it before, but really we've got no idea what's going on in, in the mind and the thinking, you know, we're still caught up in kind of thinking about dual mind and body. We don't, we've got just no idea. So it's a fascinating area. And I think I, I'm really drawn to some of the, the writing that you've done. And we'll come back to that in a moment. You also hit on something that's really important. You alluded to it and then uh, kept kept rolling. But in in the team's there's under high effort, long duration effort when you're on deployments and you see it in the teams towards the end of those deployments, people getting tired, not sleeping, um, particularly a lot of planners, the people who do the critical planning, you know, they're only sleeping a few hours a night and then going out all day on ops and then yeah. coming back or all night on ops. And you see the grumpiness come in and the inevitable kind of argy-bargy that goes on that everyone's quite professional about and kind of works through. But you start to wonder on the impact of not only operations on the ground and decision-making, but also the strategic and uh, planning decisions, you know, at three in the morning. And you've commented on this in some of your inf- in, in your articles, I think on, on your website, around the reliance on heuristics and or reliance on, on you know, lazy thinking, if you like, or <laughs> yeah. systems um, yeah. uh, one thinking and the interruptions it has on, on uh, decision-making uh, around biases, etc. Just you want to expand a little on that, mate, in the kind of team context, the mission yeah. critical team context. Yeah. So we, early days when we're overseas, and this is actually like the preferred method of working was you do, you'd work well into the night, and then you would conduct your task at the the most appropriate time, which is usually very early hours of the morning, because you want people in bed, you want people tired. Downside is is that you fatigued your whole task force doing it, and then when you add on all the planning that goes through throughout the day and this sort of thing. We used to joke about when we were overseas that we didn't go into reverse cycle, we just went into SAS cycle, which is just 24-hour days. You know, (laughs) you sleep a little bit here and there. But it wasn't that bad. So, like, by the time you get there, and when you look at the research on fatigue, like your alcohol equivalent in reaction time, or your reaction time as compared to an alcohol equivalent, like you'd be legally drunk reaction time sort of thing. So that has to have an impact on your decision-making, on your response speed, these sort of things. There is a huge body of evidence out there that shows that caffeine can mitigate the impact of that. And a lot of guys were using caffeine, like gums and sort of those five-hour energies and those sort of things just before you'd arrive at that critical point where you needed to upregulate. But there's also some indications in the literature that when your threat response goes up as you're closing in on these target areas or these 
points where you're going to have to be able to respond and make decisions is that the threat response will cover some of that gap. Like it increases, it increases your awareness, it increases a lot of cognitive function. There's a lot of biological changes that go on around the threat response that are going to bring you up to a better level. But you can't sustain that for really long periods and you can't sustain chronic caffeine use if you're on a four to six month employment. Like it's you're yeah. borrowing from somewhere to get that. So eventually paying it, that, paying it forward or borrowing from the future, yeah. Yeah, so there's a cost and it has to be repaid at some point. So it's not sustainable in the long term. It's sustainable in the short term and it can definitely cover a gap. But it definitely raises some questions and I can't be definitive about it because there's just not enough research and I don't think there will ever be enough research because you you just can't get standardised information and data from within these environments. But it would be easy to make the argument that guys are more prone to conditioned responses within those environments or they're more prone to making false positives around a threat because when we think about survival, if we can identify a threat earlier and we can respond, and a lot of times it's not so much a deliberate response, it's more of a reactive avoidance response and this is probably starting to get a lot into the phd now where if we can identify a threat and it's all life threats in these environments so especially if we're in close proximity so at night if i go into a room and i identify what looks like an enemy combatant's muzzle or i see a small silhouette that to me indicates a environmentally relevant cue that that individual is armed then for me to avoid being killed, my reaction is going to be engaged because the information that I've got tells me that I'm, my life is in jeopardy now. So I'm more likely to respond with a avoidance behaviour and the avoidance is being killed, so my behaviour is going to be around not getting killed. So I'm going to likely to engage sort of thing. And this is like a hypothetical sort of yep. situation. And when I'm mentally fatigued, I'm not going to spend a lot of time or I'm going to spend less time trying to validate that initial cue identification. It yep. may not be a muzzle barrel, it, but if I've thought it is, I'm going to identify that as a threat because I know or subconsciously I know I'm in a sleep-deprived state and that's made my decision-making vulnerable or I'm not quite as quick. So I'm going to respond a little bit faster to that initial information because if I see it as a threat and I respond, then my life's no longer in jeopardy. If I spend time or I don't classify that as a th- threat and I don't respond and it is a threat, then I get removed from the gene pool. So sort of <laughs> I've compromised the mission. You know, I've just created a problem for the guys around me to solve. Yeah. So that's where we're more prone to false positives. Yeah. It's because it increases our chance of survival where if we classify that as not a threat and it is a threat, then we've jeopardised ourselves. Do you share this type of information with some of the tactical populations that you work with and what's the response like or how, how do we how do we I suppose my deeper question is how do we box this information up and make it useful to to the practitioners Yeah so because I've only just kind of started in talking to some of these organizations and started the research I haven't got it out a lot so I started getting it out but there's limitations within these environments like in Afghanistan, yeah, your, your ability to pick up information increases during the day because you just got you can observe more and you don't have to filter out so much information. But the risks to self goes right up. So I think mm. once we started working during the day is when we started taking all our casualties. Like when we're working predominantly at night, then our casualty rate was right down. I think it was almost zero. And then mm. when we started, we were forced into more daytime operations, then things got a lot worse for us. 
So ideally, these are the types of time you want to work, but then it just comes down, and this is very much PhD now, is making sure that we're conditioning the right responses or the right reactions to the right cues. Because if we're not training with the cues that we expect to see, then we're just, we're not, there's very low transfer. So you need that transfer from what you're seeing in a training environment to what you're going to see in a real environment. And this is where a lot of you sort of, Law enforcement, tactical agencies are at an advantage because they're seeing these cues regularly. Like yep. they don't have to train too much because they're seeing these cues in their environment and they're constantly updating their pattern recognition of what a threat is and what a non-threat is constantly as their environment or they change all these environments and they're getting really good exposure to a lot of different stuff. So their chances are a lot higher. And you could probably argue their risk is probably slightly lower, like, not every time they go into a building is there going to be a confrontation that is kinetic. Yeah. You know I mean, like when they do happen, yeah, they're high intensity and there's a lot of learning that comes from it. But in a combat environment, like everyone who's armed is a potential kinetic confrontation. Yeah, we're kind of talking about the cognitive biases and, and as your fatigue and stress, they can increase or we're more prone to to, to those biases. Have you come across any way to, to counteract that, the training or any good methodologies that we can incorporate into the training to give people insight so they're more prepared and can counter those? Yeah, definitely. So I guess to try and break it down, I'll sort of jump or move back a step sort of thing. So I'll sort of talk about the anxiety as we move in and then the actual fear itself. So when I talk about anxiety, it's more as the feeling or the perception of a threat in the near future. So as we're moving towards something, we get an increase in anxiety because we think that there's something that we're about to have to confront or there's a threat. And this is in everything. It's not just in combat. Like people that are late for work in traffic, they're getting anxiety because they think their boss is going to yell at them when they get in the door. And then you spend all this time talking yourself up into all these negative possible scenarios because we're also trying to predict what's going to happen. Like we're, we're a big threat detection prediction machine because we don't like unknowns. And this is why everyone's so stuck in certainty. So the beauty of everything I've done is that certainty is not really a concern. Like I'm quite comfortable in chaos now. So Yeah, yeah. Like I prefer it to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's huge benefits. And I'll probably get into some of the chaos that I've deliberately imposed on myself. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so you get this increase in anxiety as you're moving towards. And then when there's a physical threat or it manifests into a threat, that's when the fear comes in. And then it's kind of how intense that fear is to us. So if we talk about that fear as a threat, so we'll talk about it as a threat. So there's something there that's a threat, but it's invoking a fear. So that threat has a relative intensity to us. So for somebody who's been to or deployed sort of on five to six combat operations have been in a number of very close, proximal, high-intense situations, their tolerance to threat's really high because they've been exposed to it. And it's like any, or it appears to be like any sort of other capacity. And it, it, obviously everyone's going to be different. Some people just won't be able to tolerate threat that well. So there is some genetics around it as well. But we'll talk well, about We can select in for that, can't we? They're, they're, yes, I mean, definitely. That's, that's something that we can work towards. And, and I guess that tolerance to ambiguity and kind of has informs tolerance to stress and, and making decisions. And, I, you know, a lot of people say, oh, why is selection so hard and you know, what's, what is it about selection, that those processes that we use and other mission-critical teams use as well. 
you know, they're quite deliberate in stripping people back. So at least then we can see and uh, put them under the pump, under duress and fatigue yeah. and stress and see if they're still making good decisions because it's very, very difficult to train for this stuff, I imagine. Um, and that leads me to a question. What If I was a young operator coming through now, going into a mission-critical team and I was training, how can I – you know, the things I can be doing to, you know, raise that tolerance and to counter those biases under fatigue and stress? The big one is physical tolerance to stress or physical tolerance to pain because selection is more so, and I think you cover this with Rui's, it's more so selection of people with really high physical pain tolerance. Like the, for the most part, it's a physical test and then there's some underlying test in there to sort of look at some other skills but if you've really high physical tolerance you're more likely to get to the end and you can train for that yeah that's just an exposure thing so like it's like anything if we expose ourselves to a level of physical pain that's slightly above where we're at right now we adapt like humans are the the most adaptive organism on the planet from my understanding like you just look how far we've come from where we were Mm. so like if we did crawl out of the sea then we've progressed really well from there (laughs) (laughs) Just depends on what your time period is. So, like, we we can adapt to anything if we're willing. Like a lot of times, it's expectation as well. And then you know, there's enough stuff around placebo, I think, to support your belief and your expectation around the outcome. But if you're willing to expose yourself to a slightly higher level of pain than what you have, and then you continually to increase that exposure and and allow yourself the time to recover, then you're going to increase your tolerance to physical pain. Like it's just something that. If you continue to do, you'll continue to get better at it and adapt. If you avoid discomfort, and I think this is where a lot of the issues that we see around Western cultures now is that children just are taught to avoid discomfort. And I think the message is starting to change around a lot of that now. So yeah. you know, if, if you avoid, you just you're maladaptive within your environment. Like yeah. what, what should be a trivial threat when you're six is still a threat when you're 30. Like you should continue to evolve and expose yourselves to these pain and it's the same with the threat you know as i sort of spoke about the threat intensity that's a capacity so and it's i think like is it exposure treatment in psychology where if you're afraid of spiders they start off with one little spider or another spider and they slowly increase it to you know, yeah, a coffin full of spiders and that's right. <laughs> yeah. eating spiders or something. Yeah, but it, it but is important. And I, like yeah, there's, a, there's a, I think it's Jean Twenge. I, I don't know if you've come across her. She's done a pretty long, you know, a big longitudinal study of uh, resilience, I suppose, or indicators of resilience in children, just from a Bureau of Statistics type of numbers yep. and, and metrics. But it's pretty, pretty makes for pretty good reading. And she talks about parent styles. These bulldozer parents, you know, they're not helicopter parents. You know, they're yeah. bulldozers. They actually bulldoze everything in front of the kid and 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 let them. But I notice again in some of your writing about you know being a parent and bringing some of your research across practical in, in the practical side of parenting about making sure you know of course safely, but um, making sure your kids are getting plenty of bumps and bruises along the way and and lots of exposure to uh, resilience building. And I know over this COVID period, I found myself being invited along to give chats on mental health and well-being and you know and there's a real serious side of that of course but i'm in fear of of uh disputing some of the statistics i don't think it's as as broad ranging as we think the real the the very harmful end of mental health i think there's a little bit in this people might not want to hear that they need to get out and exercise physically and exercise hard and that's that and have the discipline to do that that's the hard news for everyone around resilience i get mindfulness and meditation they have absolutely have a place like a lot of other things but there is an inevitability about 
suffering a little bit to to build that resilience. And um, I, I agree with you. I think that message is changing now. I think we're coming back to realise that uh, you've got to bend it a bit to to make it stronger. Yeah, I sort of because I've got young kids, I look at it a lot of that with a bit of interest to make sure that I'm doing the right sort of things. Because I, uh, my early days when I was in the regiment, everything was the hard way, and I went into some teams where everything needed to be the hard way, otherwise you just got booted. Um, <laughs> so it was not a very hardline approach. So I've had to make sure that I've adjusted my opinion on that and to come back a little bit because it was too far in one direction. Like it's, yep. you just don't hammer into everything. Like it's, a sledgehammer is not the tool that you use every time you go out. So yep. I, mean, I certainly didn't want my kids having to go out thinking that, you know, dad's nails, we have to prove that we're nails because it's just not the case. You're tough when you need to be or you're – resilient when you need to be and then you know in our house there's sort of a lot of comforting and that sort of thing when it's appropriate as well but um, in saying that we're sort of got frequent fly miles at the x-ray machine down the road so yeah um, right. <laughs> our kids are pretty free range but you know like, like kids adapt to everything really quick and you know in support of that research you're talking about i did see some stuff and i, I can't remember the researcher where the intervention is based around teaching the parents not to accommodate kids discomfort to actually the intervention was on the parents to get out of the way and they found yep. that's the most effective intervention. Like the kids are fine. Just yep. let them do their thing. Life will give them enough stress that they can learn to respond to it. Um, well, you don't have to go and force things on your kids. Like there's plenty of stuff out, plenty of friction in life and obstacles to overcome. It's just giving them, letting them do it. Yeah, you mate. One thing, uh, one thing you do is you deliberately put these types of obstacles <laughs> in front of yourself. Um, so switching now, and because we could talk, I, I would point yeah. everyone to your emerging research, and we'd love to share that with the community as it, as it evolves, mate. And I know your, your current research is in developing evidence based training methods to enhance combat marksmanship behaviours and and just skill ac- around skill acquisition and processing information but i think that has absolute relevance across the the whole domain the whole mission critical team area and beyond so I'll, I'll really look forward to tracking you on that and I'd, i would encourage anyone to go to danny's website comanchegroup.com and have a look he's, he's got some articles in there and, and a couple of them for me are go-to articles that i share when i, I talk to sports and other and other domains but it has made and i think your yeah, we talk about parenting here and it might people are going what are they talking about parenting now you know but but it just goes to show that we're the human organism no matter what environment it is there's some fundamental things that we can we can grip onto and, and start yeah, to open our yeah, mind one of to. the the big things that i've kind of understood since i've learned about it was actually understanding where all my insecurities come from sort of thing so right it would it's difficult to in the early days to come out and be open with yourself about it sort of thing but looking back like when i joined the regiment, even though I was curious about what I could do, there was still definitely some insecurities about proving my worth within that environment. And I think there's a lot of people that get caught up in that. Yeah, I, I did, certainly, yeah. Yeah, you know, and so for me the question is, okay, well, where did that come from? Like how did I get to a point where I thought that I wasn't enough or I was coming from a place of almost some sort of scarcity where I had to prove myself sort of thing? And I think understanding that can solve a lot of problems in people because if you can work out, where your pain point has come from because, you know, when you look at kids, they'll internalise from my understanding most things that go on. Like they don't think dad's come home from work and he's been dealing with a bunch of turds all day and he's not happy about it. I come home and they're like, oh, dad's in a bad mood, so obviously we're not lovable because we've done something wrong. So Mm. the child will internalise that. So I think team members do too if you're a leader. I think the same thing plays out and we might glide past and dismiss being a good parent 
and its parallels with being a good so-called leader or a people manager or, or, or in other domains. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we both, I don't want to go too deep into this because this is way outside my lane. Yeah. I'm comfortable. Oh, no, let's swim in the pool, mate. Let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm comfortable running down the road kicking everyone's <laughs> apple cart and seeing what comes of it. Right. Um, but as a team leader, and I spent a long time almost deliberately not being a team leader because I just wanted to be a really good operator. I didn't need to be responsible for the outcomes of five other people. Like to me, that that scared me. Like being responsible for their lives almost scared me to a degree. And I I didn't need to have power. Like I don't have to go and prove that I'm the world's best planner or anything like that. I was just comfortable being a really good contributor and doing my job. And I didn't want to have to deal yeah. with the bullshit and writing stuff and <laughs> all right. that other stuff that went on. I just wanted to do my job and go home and left alone. But you're a father figure, so you're 100. percent So like when I first got there, there's some dudes who were really f- critical in their feedback and they were very forward in giving it to you so like i don't think i ever had any positive feedback for the first couple of years and a lot of it you would internalize like okay well i'm just not performing here you start to get real doubts about your ability as an operator when you're first going through because every time you do something it's wrong and thankfully i didn't grow up in that environment where my house was that critical but i could see how that would play on somebody who's coming in with those insecurities already because that's a difficult place to be if that's the environment that you're in and you've already got those sort of insecure feelings about it or that sort of belief. And it's a false belief really when we break it down. Yeah, definitely. But a lot of those patrol commanders, they are sort of father figures. They're very much mentors and that sort of thing. And thankfully I had a lot of really good ones as I started to progress through. And then the environment's changed. Like this, that kind of feedback just doesn't happen that much anymore. Like we've become much more mature in the way we do things. And I guess, well, the other side of that is the guys who were my patrol commanders when I first got there, it would have been worse when they got there. So that's just what they'd seen. That's what they understood. And, you know, until we've seen a better way, we don't always understand how to get there. So, Yeah, spot on. Like I think there's a lot going on in those environments. They're really complex. And you're talking about the closeness of these relationships that people are having within an environment because those teams are really tight. Like if you go away with a team for four to six months, you become really tight mm. sort of thing. So, you know, for me, understanding how kids work or how kids raise their belief systems, how they understand their place in the world has helped me get rid of a lot of the sort of demons from my past sort of thing. I understand, okay, well, this is what I thought back then. It's just probably based from something I picked up when I was younger. Maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was a sports coach. Maybe it was my year 12 career advisor telling me to go brush floors. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. But it's like, you know what, it's, I'm not carrying that shit anymore. I can get rid of that. Yeah, you allude to something important. I spoke to Peter Ward recently. He's the uh, commander of the Special Operations Group and Critical Response Team here in Melbourne. And uh, he said that one thing he learned over his career and one thing he'd like to see more of is people challenge those behaviors and you know you alluding to the fact that we just learn them and pick them up and run on again I, you know I think we've got to find a way that junior operators or or to tell them that they're competent and uh, you know have them respectfully challenge some of the assumptions and some of those things I think that's uh probably a little way off in the future yet we'll get there but yeah. change is pretty slow but uh that's a security thing as well I sort of look at it so like if you've got a a certain point within the command structure where you can't challenge it what are they insecure about that they're not willing to take that feedback? 
Yeah. You know yeah, I mean? like, that's a good point. It's an interesting topic. The institutions everywhere are under challenge, aren't they? And it kind of brings us back to where we started about trying to introduce change back in the mid-2000s around how yeah. we train and maintain people. And it's a, it's of huge interest across the MCT. Yeah, I talked to the guys from Victoria Ambulance here and, and uh, Emergency Medicine and others. And these conversations, this conversation we're having now, uh, are very similar to the ones they're having. Mate, I want to bring it back. Yep. We could go on forever about that and and I, and um, and long may we we will yeah yeah well leadership's complex and i don't delve into it too much yeah but it's it's relationships and relationships are complex yeah that's right people are complex mate talk about complex uh so i, I alluded to it before we, we're kind of rounding the boy to head home now but i talked about it before you know you know bulldozer parents and making sure your kids get knocked about and all the rest of it you deliberately put these obstacles and and knock yourself about deliberately. You know the ultra endurance adventure, this four hundred and thirty mile Yukon Arctic ultra marathon or ultra adventure trail or race, a three hundred fifty mile Iditarod. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, uh, invitation. And next year you're going on the thousand mile Iditarod trail. Invitational. So, give us a brief overview of how that started. <laughs> what? Why would you do it? And yeah, everyone wants to know why. Like, how did you get to that point? Like, you don't wake up thinking I'm going to walk a thousand miles through the frozen. They're just a bunch of loony, loony people. Uh, when you all get together, is it just they're randomly just normal people, like really normal people. Um, yeah. One of the guys who I think he's finished six times on foot the thousand mile. He's a physicist with Google. Sort of thing. So, like just right. very, very comfortable being out on his own for really long periods, <laughs> doing really <laughs> hard stuff. I was like, six times I don't know about that. Once would be enough. Like I'm happy with knowing Jesus. I can do it. But yeah, like most things, it just started off something small. So it's just started off actually banter in one of the rooms overseas with a couple of guys. We're looking at a few different events, and I think it was a marathon to Saabs. Someone started talking about that, and to me that seemed huge. Like I think it's six marathons over six days sort of thing through the Sahara. And then it was just out of the question at the time. And then something similar came up in Western Australia at Kununurra. And I thought, that's close enough. I can go do that. So I did that. And then it was more guys coming in and just challenging me. Oh, I bet you can't do this, but you can't do that. So I, I fell for it. Like, it's ego. Yeah. <laughs> it's me straight up. That was the ego that responded. Yeah. And then, like, he responded. And then I go, away. I was like, there's no chance I'm walking through the snow. And the first one was the Yukon Arctic Ultra. So that has a 100-mile, 300-mile, and a 430-mile, which works out to be about 750 kilometres, I think it was. And they're, they're rough estimates because it depends on how they cut the trail each year. And it follows the Yukon Quest, which is a mushers race with the dogs. So the dogs leave, and the next day you either go on bike, ski, or foot. So I chose foot because I thought bike's too easy. But it's probably pretty difficult or harder than what I give them credit for. So I thought I'll go on foot and I just didn't have access to a bike or those fat bikes and just carry your sled or drag your pulk as they call it. So I thought if you're going to do it, just do it once. So I went straight for the 4.30 and I managed to convince the dude to let me on. I just made up some stuff about being a winter survival trainer and all this sort of stuff with special <laughs> forces. It's like the reality is I've been skiing maybe twice and I hated the cold. I just thought <laughs> this looks really tough and this is going to be really uncomfortable but I kind of – like there's something about getting up in the morning with no idea of what is about to unfold for the next 20 hours yeah, and just enjoying the the opportunity or whatever comes at me sort of thing. So, you know, in some of these environments, they are sort of semi-blizzard environments, there's sort of big snow or decent snowfall so you can't really find the trail. 
the idea of getting lost in the middle of nowhere in the subarctic kind of does worry me a little bit um, because <laughs> I can't really envisage a way out of that situation. But, you know, you've got beakers. You can get a helicopter to come and rescue you. Most problems can be solved. So I think some of them probably a bit of a financial hit to have a helicopter come and rescue you. Yeah. But I just really liked the idea of it and I thought it looked like a really good challenge and that will push me well beyond anything I've done before. So, And I've always been curious to see just what humans are capable of. So I thought... You know, if someone's done it before me, then what stops me from doing it? If I prepare adequately, what stops me? You certainly, uh, you certainly must have enjoyed something because you went back and did the three fifty mile, <laughs> the start, and I guess that's you have to do your penance before you go to, yeah. the, to the big one next year. But mate, just give us an insight. What talk? Was there a moment along both of those adventures that you kind of thought, you know, what the fuck am I doing here? Oh. Yeah, you have those thoughts. Like even on the small ones, like I'll go and do a 30K trail run in training. And like here it's hot at the moment. So it was like 31 degrees and I was out running around. They're called mountains, like the hills out here. And I was cooking and I was about 20Ks in with 10Ks going. I was like, what are you doing? But, yeah. you know, like I mean, I, there's no way home except running the rest of the distance. Um, but, yeah, when you're out there, you go through thousands and thousands of thoughts. Like there's so many repetitive thoughts. All sorts of random songs go through your head and get stuck. Like once I start, for me, it's almost no option but to finish. I just work out what's the easiest way for me to get to the finish and I start spending a lot of time planning on how I'm going to do it, sort of how I'm going to break it up, what my rest patterns look like, these sort of things. And once I'm halfway, then I have to go the other half. Like in my head, I've walked halfway. The easiest way now is to walk the other half. It's almost as though I think about it in the perception that if I stop, I've got to turn around and walk all that way back, like not just – get off at the checkpoint, get in the car. Yeah, no, um, no choice. Yeah. 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 So once I've hit halfway, it's on. And then as you're saying, the 350 is a qualifier for the 1,000. So I emailed and said, oh, I've done this one in the Yukon, which is essentially the same race, which was 430 miles. Can I just do the 1,000? And they said, it's a different race. You've got to come and do it. And when I did the Yukon, we actually had really good conditions. It was cold but not super cold. Uh, I think it got down to about minus 40 on the last night, which is probably considered super cold. But when it gets cold, the trail gets really hard, so it makes it really easy to walk on. The polks just slide straight across it and it's really easy. So it was a lot easier than what I thought it would have been sort of thing. So I did it. How many Ks a day are you um, So it took me 10 days, so I was averaging around about 70, 75 Ks a day. So there's some days okay, where wow. you, you do more, some days less. So you kind of – get out of bed at around about four in the morning and then there's probably six hours of darkness, which is the toughest period because you, you can't wake up in that darkness. So yeah. I was sort of caffeine, no dose, these sort of things to get me sort of my focus up. Otherwise, you're just sleepwalking for a couple of hours. Sun comes up, you get that sun comes in and the sun makes a massive difference. As soon as that comes up, it's almost you feel yourself being recharged and then walk through till sort of about midnight or so and then sleep for a couple of hours. So about 20 hours of walking, a checkpoint wow. here or there if you're lucky. Some days you might not see one for – Two days, yeah. Then, good, good on you, mate. And, and just now to finish up, how are you preparing in sunburnt Australia in the middle of summer for <laughs> you know the Iditarod up in North America? What are you doing for training? What's your what's your kind of weekly routine uh, at the moment? So it's mostly volume. So like I can't prepare to walk for twenty hours a day, uh, and thankfully because I've got so much volume in my past from walking around with packs on and just walking around all the time or being on feet is that it makes it easier for me to go into these races and they're all just slow, steady pace. So it'll take me around somewhere between 25 to 30 days to cover that distance. You're like the uh, cyclist you alerted to before. You've kind of conditioned yourself to 
expend low anxiety or low kind of cognitive effort or, yeah. or, or energy and, uh, yeah, just conditioned, obviously. Yeah. Like I don't I don't know, but I seem to have an ability to just completely switch off from pains, completely switch off from worrying thoughts, these sort of things. So I just go out. Once I'm in a rhythm, I can just get walking. So like on when I did the 350 beginning of this year, there was record high snowfalls for the last 20 years. So there was a lot of snow. And I've never snowshoed. And so I pretty much did the whole thing in snowshoes. So within probably about two or three days, my hip flexor was just on fire. Like it was just getting really stiff. And then it randomly just turned off. It was almost as though the brain sent signal back to the hip flexor saying, no, this is happening. So let's just <laughs> cut that signal. So yeah. that signal just got cut out and I ignored it. And then probably about five days into it, my heels just started getting really ripped up because I just rented the snowshoes when I got there. I, I saw some photos needed. of that, mate. It looked um, horrific. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was unpleasant. And then <laughs> the sort of last day, I had about 50 miles to go, and it was the last push. I wasn't stopping. Like when you get close enough, it's like it's just now you go. And I kept my shoes on for – I slept, probably slept for about two hours that night, and I kept my shoes on because I knew my feet would swell too much to get them back in if I took my shoes off. Uh, and yeah, sleeping right. is just – Roll out your mat on the side of the trail, give your bag in and off you go. You wake up, pack it all up, and you're off. But when I put my snowshoes on, it was almost like I felt like I'd put my foot in a bear trap and I was just yeah, like okay. AD strapping this bear trap to my foot. <laughs> it took me about an hour to stop that pain signal. But then once I was going, I was fine. And it's just sort of, there's no pain, so just keep going. Just don't uh, stop once you stop it. It's bloody amazing, mate, and I, uh, I I take my hat off to you, mate. I, I, I have an increasing interest tracking you on um, on Instagram <laughs> and uh, through the website, mate, and you're a bloke who loves to punish yourself with the, the PhD, but, again, I, I, I would encourage everyone to keep an eye. We'll look at putting it up into the resources when you're happy with any, anything you're happy with that we can share with the community. That would be great. Danny, it's been awesome, mate, and it's great to connect and um, and uh, look forward to, as I said, sharing the information uh, in the team notes and um, and tracking both your journey on the uh, the one thousand mile I did a rod trail invitational in, next year, and also, as I said, we'll share some of your articles too in the show notes. Mate, good luck in your preparation and good work on the, on the PhD, mate. Keep charging, and thanks very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. And like I said, it's an honour to come on because um, I know just the work the Teamcast community does for things. So anything I can share that's going to add value, I'm definitely open to sharing that and I'll keep putting out what I'm learning through my PhD definitely. And as that stuff gets published, I'll make those links available and anything that I sort of find that won't get published that I can talk about, then I'll definitely make an effort to get that out there. All going well, I should get on the race. I think an actual international exit exemption is probably going to be my biggest barrier. So if you know anyone in... Border Force that I can reach out yeah, to. Anyone who's listening from <laughs> anyone, Border Force. Anyone wants to do me a solid sort of thing, but I don't think Representing your country, mate, I can't see why not. So, well, yeah. you can put in for the exemption sort of thing, just, I don't know, there's no guarantees. But I think coming home is the problem with the backlog, and I don't think the vaccine's going to save me in time. But right. So hopefully I get there. But I, I kind of like the idea that there's extra challenges this year anyway, like if it wasn't hard enough already. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, and if anyone has any questions or anything like that, um, they can reach out to you or like, I'll can put up my details, they can reach out. Happy to discuss. Free website, mate, yeah. comanchegroup.com, Daniel Cooper. And, yeah. mate, they, thanks very much for coming on the show again. Yeah, no, real pleasure. Thanks for All having right. me. Been brilliant talking to Danny Cooper, MCT operator, PhD candidate, ultra-adventurer and stay-at-home dad, and I hope the duelling Australian accents weren't too hard for many of you to follow. 
it's been great to get another team cast under my belt as host. I thank you all for your patience. Uh, we'll be back with some more guests over the coming months, including emergency physicians, sports and cognitive researchers, and I'm hoping to bring on a world-renowned ethicist to talk about moral dissonance and moral injury, which is rarely touched upon, uh, and, but it's a subject that impacts everyone on the teams I know. You can find out more about the Mission Critical Team Institute at missioncti.com. On the website, you can sign up for our newsletter and join our distribution list. And you can also share the Teamcast all over your favourite social media and podcast channels if you like. Until next time, thanks for tuning in and look after each other.